1: Thank you, everybody, for joining us for Rocks Across the Pond. My name is Ryan McGee, and I'm coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, and joining me from Southampton, England, is our Professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, were you among those that went to the beach in those pictures that I saw from Bournemouth earlier this week?
2: No. Uh, I don't sure. Have you seen me lately with my crazy corona beard? I guess you saw me on a live stream with our friends from Game of Stones. Oh, yeah. I'm a shut-in, man. I'm not leaving the house like ever again. You know, you know those like, Japanese soldiers who like, were on these small Pacific islands and didn't surrender from World War II until like 1970? That's going <laughs> to be me. I'm like never leaving the house ever again. Coronavirus is going to be gone. And in 2040, people will find me still in my house. I'm not leaving.
1: You're not going to leave until we have a um, a vaccine for COVID. No, even after
2: that, <laughs> even after that. You know, like COVID conspiracy theorists, I'm like the opposite. I'm like, how they like deny it. I'm like, it's always going to be there. I'm, I've, I've kind of snapped. I think. What week are we on now?
1: I don't. Don't I don't know.
2: <laughs> We're over a hundred days of lockdown. I know that.
1: So. Yeah, we are.
0: Yeah. So
2: if you can do a hundred, you can do a thousand, right? So
1: yeah. <laughs> if you can do a hundred It's <laughs> a hell of a leap, man.
2: I got but I'm just I'm not shaving my beard or trimming it until uh I'm free. That's my that's my new mantra.
1: Oh wow. That's it's like endless
2: November, right. man.
1: So you've had a busy yeah. week. You've uh, you've actually done some some journalist work while I've been doing actual work. <laughs>
2: Yeah, unpaid journalist, John Havercroft, Cup reporter.
1: So you've you've you taught you got us two pretty good interviews this week um, relating to the curling world. Pretty cool, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think should we go? Who do you want to go with first?
1: Scotland, I think, because that's the that's the that's the most recent. News. That's that's the most newsworthy thing, right? Because what's what's going on? And tell everyone what's going on in Scotland right now. Obviously, we saw the news a couple weeks ago that they've decided that the national champion in Scotland is not automatically going to the Worlds. That there's going to be it's going to be more of a selection process that looks at the whole year. Uh, basically, it's probably Bruce Mowat's Bruce Mowitz to lose, right? <laughs>
2: Uh yeah so yeah so they went to a selection system I think the trigger for this was COVID because the two years of accumulating points was cut down to one year so as soon as lockdown happened, um, Scottish Curling announced that next year's champion from the Scottish Curling wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed uh, the opportunity to represent Scotland at that year's World Championship, and offered instead to pay. For the winners of the Scottish Championship to go to an international bond spiel. Not not really clear which one. Um, but that was that was the prize, which is actually a pretty bad consolation prize if um you know depends on where so, the bond
1: spiel is, right?
2: I mean technically the Kenton Sussex Cup would meet that criteria, so you know.
1: Well, come you play re- in
2: our little three sheeter in England.
1: Find uh find a bond spiel in Cancun. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I would pick a very expensive bond spiel, someone far away. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, so we were trying to reach out for someone for this. And uh, we got, what I did in the end is got my friend Stu Brand uh, to come on. He lives up in Sterling. He's plays for England. I played with him last year on the World Mix but because he's got English nationality, but he actually is based in Scotland and also a member of the RCCC. So uh, he sat in on the Zoom meeting AGM yesterday that was fairly controversial. If you're following Scottish curling social media, and let's be honest, who amongst us doesn't do that? Um, you saw that it was quite lit, as the kids like to say. So let's do kind of explain what's going on up in Scotland. Uh, I'm joined by my friend and Skip Stuart Brand, so he skipped me in last year's World Mixed Curling Championships, but we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about Scottish curling, so Stu lives up in Stirling, and so for our North American listeners, the Stirling Curling Rink is where the National Curling Academy is, which is the High Performance Center for British curling. So all the famous curlers from Scotland, like Eve Murad, Bruce Millett, their teams all train <clears throat> in Sterling. So Stu's got his ear pretty close to the ground when it comes to uh, all things Scottish curling. And so for those of you who've been paying attention, one of the big controversies during the off season has been um, the selection process for Team Scotland for next year. And so I want Stuart to join us to kind of explain a little bit about what's been going on. So welcome to the podcast, Stuart.
3: Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be here.
2: And so, Stu, what's what's been happening? What, what, how is the Scottish team normally uh, decided?
3: Well, traditionally, um, for 30, 40, 50 years, the Scottish teams that go to the World Championships um, have always been the winners of the Scottish, which is the, the Scottish National Championships for for the men and the women. Um, it's always been seen as, as kind of the pinnacle of Scottish curling. Um, and over the years, there's been quite similar, I think, to the Canadian um, setup, where you have provincial championships, and it's not quite as big, but there's rinks, and the winners of rink local rink championships would go forward to the Scottish, um, and then winning the Scottish was always that pinnacle. Um, but over the years, um, the number of entries to the Scottish have, have really declined, um, and it's kind of kind of led to this controversy that's that's happening at the moment. So the current controversy. What so?
2: What, what exactly happened uh, this offseason that change things?
3: Well, the, the, there's a, there's always been I think a, a bit of friction in the in the past years because there's kind of two entities that are involved with um, Scottish curling in as much as there's, there's the Scottish curling, um, which used to be, the R, or still is the RCCC, which basically runs Scottish curling, but there's a totally separate body called British curling, which is responsible for the um, GB, Team GB Olympic entry, and they are the ones that get all the money from, there's lottery funding, and there's millions of pounds pumped in by UK sport to basically get Olympic medals, um, and effectively... The other home nations scotland wales curlers there aren't good enough to be able to represent team gb so scottish curling british curling have got a very close relationship around how the olympic qualification goes forward so for example at the world championship the olympic points that are used for qualification for the world champ sorry for the olympics um is the scottish teams that get those points for team gb so the controversies come around especially with the the what's happened with last year's world championship being um cancelled uk sport investment all this money they want to be sure that the best teams are representing scotland or what they perceive to be the best teams are representing scotland at the world championships to get the olympic points For uk sport is all about the olympics um, so the controversy is they want to make sure that their teams that their funding are going to go to the world championships to hopefully get the olympic points to qualify team gp for the olympics in 2022
2: so sorry, so so so, the, what was the proposal for selection then for next year? Like how would the teams be decided?
3: So that's kind of, they would be decided by a three-person panel. Two of those people would be from British Curling, the performance coach, the, the head of performance, and there would only be one person from Scottish Curling that would have that input. So it's basically, there's there's no specific criteria that I'm aware of, um it is very much a a judgment call which i think is what's got a lot of people's backs up there's been the tradition of the winners of the scottish have always represented scotland at the world championship and now it's seen that it's going to be selected the scottish is going to lose its prestige and there's you know there's people talking there's questions about how is that selection process going to work is it going to be if your face fits jobs for the boys that kind of thing and it's just not the way that a, a lot of people think that the representation should be um, should be decided.
2: Okay, and so then there was a big AGM, the Annual General Meeting was yesterday. Uh, it was. And, and so there's a bit of a controversy there too. So what happened after the selection policy was announced to get us to the AGM uh, yesterday?
3: Okay, yeah, so what, this, what Scottish Curling did, they changed this policy just at a board level because there's kind of into technicalities of the constitution and the memorandum of articles of association of, of Scottish Curling. There's there's a there's the constitution section and then there's the rules of the game section. So the rules of the game section is where this rule that said that previously said the winners of the Scottish would represent Scotland at the World Championship and that the board, having taken legal advice, they said that they could make a unilateral decision to change that um set up as to who represents scotland without consulting the membership um the some of the membership wasn't very happy about that so um basically a special resolution was put forward to the agm that happened yesterday effectively saying we want the board to overturn that decision as the membership we're dictating to the board you can't do that and we want the winners of the scottish to be who represents scotland at the world championships now because of the way this resolution was put forward um it wasn't just a simple majority of members um, to overturn the board decision. It actually needed 75% um, majority, um, and the results were that it got 68%. So the board got their way, but there were some quite conciliatory um, overtones coming during the meeting and after the meeting with the, um, the updates on the, on the Scotch Curling website, about how the board recognizes that the membership does have a quite a strong view on this um and they've now said that this selection policy will only be in force for the next year, and then they're going to be having a lot more reviews and trying to consult with members more, et cetera to try and get everyone on board and get a decision I think that everybody's going to be happy with
2: okay, so what do you think should happen then
3: um that that's a that's a tough one. I, Personally, I'm not in favour of selection. I think that you should have a championship and the winners of that championship should be the ones that go and represent Scotland. I can understand why UK Sport, uh, they are piling millions of pounds into the performance squads that, that train here in Stirling and they want to protect their investment. But um, I think there are some traditions of the game and just traditions of what sport's all about sport is about proving yourself on the day i think in a final to show to show that you're the best and you'll you win that right to represent your country i i, I just think selection can be um too. too there's, there's too much judgment involved in that and i think one of the best examples is look at who won the last olympics they were there was a selection policy in 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 usa schuster's team weren't part of that but they managed even despite that they managed to show and, and qualify for the olympics show they were actually the best and get through selection i think just think selection doesn't work
2: yeah okay thanks a lot Stu. Uh, thanks for joining us today and we'll be following this story closely because i'm sure the controversy is not going to die down
1: so jonathan what is next for scottish curling now that all of this has happened at their agm meeting this weekend
2: so, I mean, I guess for this year, uh, the selection policy remains. So that's, but the issue here is the the membership voted overwhelmingly against it. It's just that it required seventy five percent to overturn the board policy. It got sixty eight percent. Although once you fact, once you pull out the proxy votes, you got pretty close to seventy five percent. The proxy votes are from people who didn't show up to the meeting. They just gave their vote to the chair and the chair. The vote casted, cast the vote with the council. So, from an organization perspective, if 70, 75% of your members are voting against something, you, you go the other direction, you've really got to watch out, I think, um, just from kind of a, a board democracy issue. Um, there's a working majority there that, can, that could be um, quite troublesome uh, in future years. So, I'll be curious to see how that part of it plays out. Um, it will be selected teams next year. So that, that part's settled for now. I think the big question is, what does this do to the Scottish Championship? Do people simply not bother to sign up for it? Um, and what does this do for um, the competitive part of the game? So over on rocksacrossthepond.com, I've thrown up a little blog post um, talking a little bit about this in the broader context of the game.
1: So this year, all of these governing bodies are just losing their minds because they see one shot at getting to the Olympics or having to go to the Olympic qualification event. Could this all be solved if the worlds were not tied to Olympic qualifying?
2: I don't think so. I mean, I think the simple fact is it's getting more and more competitive, right? Um, In this cycle, Scottish curling hasn't won has only won one Olympic uh, one world's medal. Right. And that's Bruce Mowitz back in 2018. And that was actually when the field was pretty watered down because it was that right after the Olympics. So a lot of kind of strong international teams uh, didn't send their, or federations didn't send their best teams. Right. Um, the women's side hasn't even made the playoffs. Uh, well, Moats has been kind of pretty solid for making the playoffs the last few years. Uh, it's, it, they haven't they haven't medaled since 2018 i guess there's only one year last year they didn't medal last year right we're starting to see other federations come on strong like japan's been a consistent medal threat the last few years they didn't even qualify for the olympics last year um, so the fact of the matter is there's only nine spots in each competition for national teams and whereas two or three cycles ago the kind of traditional curling powerhouses including scotland were pretty much a shoe in as countries like China, like Japan, like Korea, like Russia emerge as kind of strong podium threats in these different disciplines, some of the kind of traditional powerhouses no longer have their guaranteed path to the Olympics um, assured.
1: Yeah, and I said this. I said this on Twitter. If you want to think, see things really go haywire, just just have one of the Canadian teams finish seventh at this year's Worlds, and then. Curling will look vastly different, I believe.
2: In terms of what you think, how do you think it'll look?
1: I think, well, the Scott, I think the Scotties and the Briar would change almost overnight in terms of that being your path to the worlds. I think you would see you would see Canada go away from the from the from the provincial rules that it, that it has currently. I, I, I think if one of those teams misses the playoffs and has to go to an Olympic qualification event, they're going to do away with all those rules and just encourage their curlers to form the best teams possible rather than the best teams possible while also while also abiding by rules that tie you to the Scottish of the briar.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's heading that way. I strongly suspect that sometime in the near future, the Canada cup will effectively become the world qualifier uh, for team Canada.
1: But that's going to be a slow burn. That's a slow burn. I think we're still probably 10 years away from that. Unless one of those Canadian teams doesn't qualify via, qualify for the Olympics via the world championships this year.
2: Uh, it could be. I mean, I think, I think the big issue there is that um, the provincial, re- the provincial restrictions are kind of cramping some team style uh, and I think the other problem is that the Scotties and Brier are interprovincial, and they actually are for curling Canada and for TSN the biggest money makers, right? Um, so you can't exactly get rid of the interprovincial dimension of it as an event. Uh, but I'm not sure how important it is for the event to be the selection process for the national team.
1: Yeah, because you're looking, you're you're trying to protect the TV money that you get from the Scotties and the Briar and protect the money that you're getting from the Olympic programs.
2: Yeah, and those in Canada, it's slightly different, right? Because Canada's system, the, the Olympic funding is tied to performance mm-hmm. over the season. While, they, while you get kind of some on the podium funding, <clears throat> if you win a Scotties or Briar, that's not the primary place or way that teams acquire that funding. It's, it's already through the CTRS mm-hmm. system.
1: All right, so we've got one more interview lined up for this week, and it's, uh, it's a heck of a guess. It's Jerry Gertz from Curling Zone, who we've seen in the news as well as there's kind of a split in the way rankings are going to take place. There's now going to be two different ranking systems, one through the WCF, which is the World Curling Federation, and one through the World Curling Tour, the WCT, and Jerry... Is here to kind of help explain what the differences are going to be and everything that he's doing to help grow the game. Because it's, it's good to have someone like Jerry in the sport who is at the table when it comes to the way that the, the national teams are being selected and the way that the high performance teams are earning points who also genuinely cares about seeing this sport grow at the grassroots level and internationally seeing more more countries become competitive. And we kind of talk about, you You and Jerry kind of talked about both of those aspects as well.
2: Yeah, I think I learned a lot from this interview. It's a, it's a fairly long one, but we had a lot of ground to cover. So we talked about, we, we talked in a previous episode about these changes. We were wondering what was going on, basically what triggered the split and what this new world curling federation rankings would look like. Um, and so Jerry kind of clar- uh, clarified for me a lot of different misconceptions about that in this interview. And we also talked a lot about how to how to develop the game. So uh, let's listen to that interview now. All right. So I'm joined today with uh, Jerry Gertz from Curling Zone, and we wanted to discuss rankings, um, changes to the WCF ranking system, changes to the World Curling Tour. Uh, but before we get to that, Jerry, I wanted to first ask you, Um, First of all, how you're doing with lockdown. And then also, how do you think the COVID lockdown is going to shape next curling season?
0: Thanks, Jonathan, for the the opportunity to be here. Uh, Shame not to see Ryan, but uh, we'll have to uh, catch up another time with with him. Yeah, the the COVID thing has definitely been a, a battle of evolving science, right? Like the real challenge and the real problem is taking a strong position on anything that's been coming out. And I think curling is something that, uh, you know, we saw early in the news that uh, curling events were uh, being caught up in this. The the doctors' Bonspiel in Edmonton with a bunch of uh, people heading home sick with it. And the, the U.S. Club Nationals, where I've heard, uh, you know, significant numbers, around 100 caught the virus around the event. Now, it had to be confirmed, but definitely a number of the athletes uh, caught it and, and uh, you know, essentially brought it home across the country. So it it spreads very easily among groups and that's a real concern for curling.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So have you heard anything about what plans are, is this everyone just kind of still in the dark, you think in Canada about what the, how the tour is going to launch next season?
0: Yeah, I, one of the things we've been working on is trying to create as much communication as possible, getting an idea of what's happening with the uh, with the science. Uh, you're seeing a lot of clubs looking at things. You know, how are we going to set up ice? How are we going to you know have players potentially social distancing out there? Or you know, one of the things I think we definitely need to consider is we may need to wear masks on the ice. I'm not saying we have to do that now but we may get to a point where it's determined the best science suggests that uh masks are are that important and to be to be honest i think we're getting pretty close to that one of the most recent things that came out uh was that it was spread in the air that was much more uh, of a spread than even surfaces and i'm you know is that something you've heard as well jonathan
2: yeah, I think absolutely. I was yeah. well. Two things. Uh, just talking to people. One is a curling rink's the perfect environment for the virus to stick around because it's at the exactly Cold. the right temperature. Cold, dark, yeah. no natural light. Lots of yelling. And then <laughs> lots of yelling. Like I was reading something about how yelling's very bad for spreading the, the virus. Like. In a totally different context, I was like, that's not good for curling. So, I, yeah,
0: I was like, uh, that sounds like a curling club.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there'll be some challenges. Um, yeah. I mean, I, Scottish curlings kind of posted some guidelines that gave me a bit of hope. Um, a, a lot of the social distancing is just taking away the socialization, but they seem to think it was possible to play play on yeah. ice with with proper social distancing. So,
0: yeah, you could go to three three players active at any given time, kind of thing. If you have a second sweeper, they can kind of you know be the timer and skate alongside, maybe, and you know do that. But part of the problem will be just, you know, the the in sport, you're going to get close to people and all that stuff too. And so, yeah, we'll see. I think, uh, you know, one of the areas that we definitely haven't considered much is financial. You know, what do curling clubs look like from a financial perspective and are they going to be able to open? So from the yeah. tours side of things – you know, I've, there's a there's a significant event out west. I was talking to the to the Autumn Gold Committee, and that's probably the level of tour event that's going to have the hardest time. Like you look at uh, the Shorty Jenkins Classic has canceled for September already. The Canad Inns events in Portage la Prairie, Manitoba, have canceled. That tier of event, which is your top level of event uh, outside the Grand Slams it is really all about putting together a big crowd in a facility and their financial model is totally built upon that. So that's the level of event that I'm most concerned about. You know, your smaller regional tour events where you're essentially, you know, renting the club for the weekend, there's some bar revenue, revenues associated with it. You know, I think that can survive a little bit better from the, from the tours perspective. But you're looking at the same problems from curling clubs you know I, i'm worried we're going to lose a lot of curling clubs this year that just can't afford to, to take in 75 of normal revenue might not be enough to support the longevity of the club so you know you know these are all considerations that are tied into this um so from a tour perspective we've definitely got to you know look at you know, what happens when we're selling tickets and the tickets are a big component of our of our uh, prize purse? So, you know, now you're looking at a $50,000 prize purse that might be $30,000. And that's a concern of an event like the autumn gold in Calgary. So we'll see what ends up happening for, from a from an entry fee perspective to a prize purse perspective. And I think some of it it is some of it's just going to be we have to lower expectations a little bit on on this as well.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's definitely still all up in the air here as well. I was talking to the the rink manager, uh, one of the rink managers at England, and he said he wasn't sure he could open until he was confident he could get enough customers through the door to make it viable. That he just can't make meet the bills until uh, until he's uh, so he's looking at a late start, perhaps. So, yeah, I think it's every everywhere I talk, it's we're still not sure. It sounds like
0: it's definitely a big thing in um, Canada about electrical costs for hydro and running the plant and everything that goes around that is expensive. And if you can't make that viable, then it's hard to open the club period. You know, I, you know, I talked to a club where, you know, it was half a million dollars was their operating budget for the year. And based on where they live and everything and where they're set up, it would cost them about 80 grand to just sit empty for the year. Yeah.
2: So that, that probably makes sense if you're not getting much revenue then.
0: Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's going to be some difficulties in that area and, you know, we're looking at all these things. It's, it's something that, you know, I think curling clubs have an opportunity because club members, you know, they love the sport too. And they would do a lot of things to help make sure that their club stays viable. Like you look at a, at a, at a, at a bar facility in the club, you know, it's an opportunity to potentially do some of these fundraising type efforts where you sell stuff, you know, instead of, uh, you know, buying a beer after the game, you buy a six pack and a, and a bottle of wine to take home with you that night. Club makes some revenue off of it and there's a way that they can help stay viable kind of thing. So, you know, I think it's going to take some ingenuity of clubs and, and how they make that all work. But, uh, you know, I think our sport is strongly positioned to be able to, you know, to to capitalize on that, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities. So, Jerry, I think the reason we wanted to bring you on today is back in May, uh, there were a few, uh, I guess, dueling statements. So we saw one from the World Curling Tour announcing a change of rankings and we saw a response from you on Facebook So we could basically message you because we wanted to know kind of what prompted the change and, and what are the new world curling federation rankings that you're going to be involved in?
0: Yeah. So uh, there's definitely been a change in direction with the tour in 2017, the world curling tour, which currently existed uh, merged with the champions tour in uh, Switzerland and with, you know what looked to be a great opportunity. You know the the guys there built uh, what uh, appeared to be an amazing uh, series of events in Europe. They had TV rolling. Um, there was uh, funding put towards that, and unfortunately, the direction just sort of uh, kind of went off the rails at one point. And uh, and you know I'm kind of disappointed to see it happen but uh, you know, I'm ready to move on from the World Curling Tour and, and still will be fully involved in the sport. Um, the world rankings that uh, uh, began in somewhere around nine, uh, 2009-ish, 2008, um, were uh, created in partnership between Curling Canada and the World Curling Tour at the time. They called it the Order of Merit. It started out as a world ranking. And one of the key components at the time and part of this agreement was that it would always be a ranking that counted everything. As long as the event met a standard that was achievable, it didn't matter what tour, what uh, country, anything it was was uh, in. And that was the way the ranking was set up. The World Curling Tour was the stewards of this ranking. And uh, as such, essentially held a pretty important asset in the sport. You know, we became kind of the place to go to, you know, to see where your team was ranking. And it was used by all the uh, uh, national federations and everything to uh, to rank their teams. And one of the things I really saw this, this was a massive opportunity for the tour to, to essentially involve itself in the sport. You know using these rankings the swiss were one of the first to adopt it uh they ended up uh using it as part of their selection process they they uh sent teams uh you know they had to meet certain levels on the rankings and to qualify for their olympic trials and so on the united states utilized it for their uh national team process uh the 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 uh the Swedes ha, have been using it for some time now to select who goes for the world championships. You know, while it seems like there's a selection process, a lot of times what these selection processes are is you meet standards on the rankings that aren't necessarily clear to the public. So like in Sweden for the last few years now, what's happened is, is that uh, to qualify for the for the Europeans, the team with the best three results on the tour up to a certain point would be the team that would go. The Swiss actually did that last year for the uh, for their European Championships, which is why Schwaller edged out uh, De Cruz in a really exciting race actually to get there. So you know these rankings were were an imp- were are an important component to uh, being you know our our place in the sport. And by, you know, developing these opportunities, I thought, you know, this was something I really saw, you know, gave us some, some sway in the sport. And when this all merged together, this is sort of where the bro- breakdown started. Um, one of the things that, uh, that uh, between the, the two camps was our you, know, our, you know, our belief in working with the different parties in the sport, I think is important to helping grow and build the sport in a in a bigger position. So, you know, one of the ideas and suggestions from the start is is that the that we should get sanctioning from the WCF for the World Curling Tour Order of Merit. Because as so many countries were starting to use it, you know that now their reliance upon it and the importance of it being uh, managed and put together in a way that is consistent and fair and all those things, you know, is really important. And unfortunately, you know, the the push from the World Curling Tour was that they wanted a ranking where only events that paid to be part of the tour were counted on that ranking, which was never the intent from the start. And by the time we got to last spring, the World Curling Federation announced at their uh, uh, board meeting or like it was like a meeting during the the women's worlds that they were going to uh, start their own ranking and that they needed to because their member associations had uh, had asked them to do so Uh, specifically because they'd lost trust in the in the uh, in the existing ranking so so this is where the breakdown started to happen last spring And, uh, you know, we had gotten to a point where we settled this with agreements last summer. And uh, in that process, uh, the WCF World Team rankings were actually announced last September. And those were the rankings that were used last season. So I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of people didn't even realize this. It was this was uh you know fairly well known behind the scenes the events that needed to know and everything it was in place and uh and then uh unfortunately the change in direction of the tour really began there so uh as part of this agreement i i was going to run the rankings for the wcf and then with the wct i would also create a tour only ranking for them and uh, from that point i think there's you know they're gonna they're choosing to go a different direction the world curling tour has announced uh, that they are starting their own ranking Um, at this point um, the grand slams have told me that they're going to continue using the, the wcf's world team ranking um, several of the, uh, like, like there really isn't going to be any change to things like the CTRS in Canada. The CTRS has always used the uh, world rankings. They used the WCF's world team rankings last year, and essentially it all flows off of that. So for the most part, everything seems to be status quo for the world rankings, and the WCT is building something, something new.
2: Okay, so the slams. So to qualify for slams is through the world World Curling Federation team rankings. Um, okay, so uh, so I guess what's what's the point of the World Curling Tour rankings then under this?
0: Well, the the original intent with the tour was always to start bigger events and to you know to build events in in China, for example, in Asia and everything there, and you know the the idea that you would qualify off of world curling tour rankings only for something is, is the key. So at some point they've got to figure out what kind of carrot they're going to be able to offer at the end of those rankings, whether it be, you know, a, uh, you know, FedEx type, uh, uh, payout system where if you reach a certain point on the rankings, you get X amount of dollars um, or entry into big exclusive events, all kinds of stuff like that. So, that's going to be really what the World Curling Tour rankings are going to be about, and you know I I'll be interested to see what this whole uh, um, tiered structure idea that they've got going on is there. I know it's something that's been pushed from the tennis rankings kind of idea, but uh, my real concern is is using something like money or or you know boardroom decisions to decide the value of, of events is going to be a challenge in curling.
2: So maybe you could help us a bit, by because you're right. I think the average curling fan, they may see the ranking as in which team's in first, which team's in 10th, but they maybe don't know how these order of merit points work. So how do teams accumulate the points? What kind of events uh, can they enter in order to get them? Um, What does a team have to do to climb the rankings?
0: Yeah, so the uh, world team rankings, the way the system is set up is that Events are valued based on the strength of the teams playing in the event. So if you're an event who's got a bunch of the top ranking teams playing in it, your event's going to be more valuable than a regional event that might have a couple teams inside the top 100 ranking. And so the way they do that is each team is given a value. So in in this perspective, the number one ranked team in the world is worth 0.45 points to the field. Um, number two is 0.44 down to 0.26 for the 20th ranked team. And then it bunches from there. Like then, you know, 21 to 20 or 21 to 30 is a group, uh, 31 to 50, 51 to hundred. And so there's a couple more in there. And so you collect all those in the bucket. So you start throwing them in the bucket and you get a, a team value for that field. There's a few calculations in there, like uh, field size for one, um, and it scales the field where they want to try and get it to, you know, so that bucket is is a similar value. And uh, there's a small increase based on the money uh, uh, in the field. And then from there, that is what you get for a strength of field. So it's trying to take... Uh, an irregular size of field and irregular type of teams and give us a, a, a value that says, OK, if you win first, you get this and you multiply it by the the, uh, you know, the sort of the base prize. So first is seven and a half times the strength of field. Second is five and a half times the strength of field. And that's how you get your point values at the end of this. Hmm. So it doesn't really matter anything around it. The way you want to be able to do this is, you you know, if you want to say the value of winning this event is worth X because of these were the teams there. And it seems to be the fairest way of doing it and the most precise way of doing it. There have been some ideas out there. Uh, about grouping events and saying, you know, if an event is worth at this value, it should be worth, uh, you know, a 10. If this uh, it's in this value, it should be worth an eight. And you just, you know, simplify and stuff. But the thing is, is you miss out on some of that precision. The other concern about it is it, it is a little bit complicated based on all these calculations that go on and the teams that go in and the average person has... You know, no chance of calculating this. The average uh, uh, curling fan, you know, most people don't want to dig that deep into things like this. But, uh, you know, there there's other challenges when we come to a sport like curling, which is very regional in nature. Like when you look at tennis, for example, I think it was the 200th ranked team makes... I can't remember what the dollar value was. It was in the 100 to 200... It, value number, I think. Essentially what our top curling teams make. And, uh, you know, when you look at the way tennis does things, I believe the slams are 1,000 or, uh, sorry, there's 1,000 series, there's 500 series, there's 250 series. And those events are placed around the world in different locations. I don't know exactly how events get nominated to these uh, positions. But you know, when you look at curling, one of the problems is is that teams who are ranked fiftieth in the world cannot tra- afford to travel the world to chase curling. And if now you have to decide that you know, Atlantic Canada gets you know three five hundred series events, and and uh, you know, you look at Eastern Europe as a as a growth opportunity. You know, they should get four or 500 series events, you know, people in places who don't really see this or understand this would be like, well, why do they deserve that? You know, what's your criteria for putting events here? And so with, with curling that becomes really difficult to do because all of a sudden that 50th ranked team in, I don't know, rural uh, Saskatchewan or, or in the United States or, or in Europe you know, they definitely are not traveling in, in a plane to fly across the world, around the world, to play in events that fit their level of play. And so, you know, you start it, to get into a situation where these decisions are made in a boardroom, and that just brings a whole other host of problems into into to the table. Because you could very easily, you know, create a situation where... You know, all of a sudden, you know, the WCF wants to, uh, you know, increase the ranking of international teams because by deciding you put, you know, if we put 50 events in Europe and teams are just going to play. The Canadian and and, and teams specifically are not going to be able to travel to those events. So you, you need to create a system where the value of the field is is truly based on the teams playing in it and that then it will sort itself out you know just run run the events does that make sense so i was so i was yeah no it definitely (laughs)
2: does so a funny story um you obviously know this but uh so we were playing in the baltic super league so this is my men's team with rob retchless and greg and james and we we just we picked that event it had no cash, but it just happened to be an event that's put on by the the Latvian Curling Federation because it's their tune-up bond spiel for their national championship. And so they actually invite, you know, basically European B-level teams, and that's basically where England is. So we picked it for an event that was kind of at our level, tune-up a few weeks before our national championships. And there's no cash prize, but it was actually decent teams. And then I guess Rob posted something on Facebook and you saw it and messaged them. And there's a bit of back and forth. And then um, essentially the event got registered and we ended up earning points for that. So that kind of caught me off guard because I'd assume the rankings only caught events that were for money or were registered with the world curling tour. So what kind of events are, are captured in the rankings? Like what would, what would I have to do if I wanted to organize a bond spiel to get on the world, uh, world WCF team rankings?
0: So this is part of the sport and and the growth opportunity in the sport that excites me the most about working on a project like this. So like when you look at the top of the game, you know, the majority of the interest in the world rankings is really about, are we ranking the top 10 teams, the top 15 teams, the top 25 teams in the world like you would, right? Like is this, you know, if you threw those teams and you had to draw them out, is that the order that you would rank them in? based on what you kind of see what they win and all that stuff but when you drill down further into the rankings and this is you know this is one of the problems and challenges we have in 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 canada and we are losing a lot of the younger players in our sport and the world curling tour for some time now has really been surviving in canada on the increased nature of international teams traveling to canada like when you look at how many international teams are playing across Canada and you look at the different events and everything, it's those teams that are starting to help the survival of our tour in Canada. And so developing and building opportunity in the sport in all these other countries, I think, is really important, too. So, you know, when the rankings then come out and, you know, we you know, in order to move up the rankings, you've got to play events, and one of the challenges we see in some places is that it's not easy to get to some of these events. Like Europe has, for a long time, on the tour side, really been focused at some of these bigger events. So you, you know you're looking at the major Swiss events like the the oh man they're slipping my mind right now
2: Chompery Masters Chompery uh,
0: Masters uh, um, uh, the
2: Basel yeah, Cup
0: yeah Baden Masters too small. Nope, no, in Masters. Masters, uh, There was the Bund Trophy going back a few years now. But, you know, these were the events that the top teams and the top countries would all send teams to. They tried to attract some international teams. But where I really see an opportunity in our sport is to develop teams below that. And in order to do that, you really need to approach this from a few different perspectives. You know, how do we get more teams playing the game that end up becoming teams that continue to get better. So, like Ontario is uh, uh, where I where I've grown up and 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 done my work and really developed uh, my work in the sport. And the Ontario Curling Tour was was a place where we did this. Uh, going back to two thousand and two ish, there was like the World Curling Tour in general was not. Uh, represented in ontario i think we had one event in ottawa that was on the you know the cohen the 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 beauchamp there but unfortunately it was starting to uh, die out as well and uh you know we really had a hard time even qualifying for things like grand slams like that was seen as unachievable by all but glenn howard wayne madaw and uh mike harris at the time and and so we had this problem there where developing teams and, and stuff was difficult, but we had a tour. We just needed to kind of focus on, on building more events at the low level to create opportunities for teams to play so that they could end up you know, getting into this competitive mindset and playing. What it does is it creates that sandbox for the generation of curlers who actually want to do more than that. So, like you know, let's take uh, um, Scotland, the Scottish Tour, for example. It's been a group that's sort of resisted the opportunity to uh, to participate in the competitive side. There's definitely been some evolutions in the sport in Scotland, and and where uh, you know where it's changed from a a social rec sport on the tour to a you know chase the points and everything. But we really need to do more to strengthen the the social aspect of the tour you know it's it's that opportunity we need these regional tours to be strong with good events running where they're full of teams who are happy to play at that level because if you don't have that sandbox you're never going to have that opportunity as a junior or a youth player in the sport to go out and play and, and gain some experience to be able to rise up and go through that level at the same time too. It's like minor league baseball. That's sort of the, the development path and what I'd li- love to see the sport develop a little bit better at the same time, too. Because it's, you know, when, when we look at a lot of curling teams out there, you do see that uh, there are some older players still playing the game at a very high level. Our, t- our sport takes some time to develop that knowledge base. And, you know, we need to be able to present that to to in places. So, you know, Norway's been doing a really cool thing there, trying to rebuild their sport uh, with these, uh, they're called the Norway Cup. They run an event in September, one in November, December, and then they do a final somewhere in there. And the idea is, is that it's really trying to set up a local regional series for uh, for teams to play. So, you know, when you look at the Baltic Cup Cup is that what it was called? The it's
2: the Baltic Super League. Baltic yeah.
0: Super League. You know, events like that that have intent as as competitive development type events. Um, federations have the opportunity to include events like that. So, in order to meet uh, standards of you know for money and qualifying and points and all that, um, you can bypass some of the rules like that. It has to be approved by the Federation in order to be part of that. But I think, you know, we'd love to see these types of series developed and get more of these events to start building these teams in at the entry level. And, you know, this is how we create a a tour in the long-term where we have a mass of teams participating and competing that, uh, you know, encourages and offers that opportunity to develop.
2: So do, so do cash prizes matter or minimum number of teams or what, what would the criteria be? Let's say I went to the English Curling Association and said I wanted to host a bond spiel that was registered in the world curling team ranking. Um, what criteria would I have to meet?
0: It's, it's basically there isn't a specific set guideline right now, but it's the intent would be that it meets the specific competitive guidelines. You know, the intent is that this is a competitive event that uh, is, is, you know, moves towards the objectives of, of competitive play, I guess. Um, there is no specific money guidelines at this point. Or, you know, the other opportunity is if you want to run an event outside the association level, you meet the basic guidelines. And the basic guidelines are pretty low in itself. At this point, it's, it's $300 per team in the purse. And a minimum of eight teams. Mm-hmm. So the, the guidelines to actually run an event to be part of this is actually is still pretty low at the same time. The idea is in places where you don't necessarily have the funding and the dollars to be able to do this, that we don't want to have money be that uh, that uh, thing that holds them back from running these events as well.
2: Hmm. So, um, oh, the other one is, is, does it have to be gender segregated? Because sometimes events are, uh, you know, mixed gender or women's teams enter uh, just because they're looking for competitive opportunities, there's fewer women's bond spiels. So, does it have to be gender segregated or can it be an open competition? Or
0: At this point, the, the rules allow uh, for a men's event to have up to 25% uh, non-men's teams. So if it's uh, mixed teams, if it's uh, uh, women's teams, like I'm kind of torn in this, in this uh, position. So part of the challenges is, and we, we've seen this in the Midwest United States, for example, in the past, there used to be no women's spiels in like Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, um, the states right in that general strength of the sport there but they allowed the women's teams to play in the events. So their tour events would would have, uh, you know, the top women's teams would be able to play. That was how they trained their teams at the time. The challenge with that is is your average women's team is not going to enter a men's event. And so for me, it felt like they were really missing out on that opportunity to actually develop depth of teams. So we, we sort of tried to create a men's and women's section within both events. And from there, we've managed to see that the longevity of both men's and women's events has been successful. So there is a women's tour that has also developed out of this. There, this is the problem. There are some places where there are no opportunities for the women's teams to play. And so there's an opportunity to, you know, you know events that want to still do that, we do allow for that with the rankings. It's not a position where we we want to encourage that because I think it's more important to figure out how we develop actual tour events for the the women's teams in order to get there. So maybe that helps answer that question a little bit.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, So another one that's kind of related to that is so what would someone have to do if they wanted the event to be kind of caught? Like what uh, captured by the rankings? They, they contact you? Do they contact the WCF?
0: So anything that meets the minimum standards, we will add it to the list. So, you know, if, if you're an event that's part of the regular tour and, you know, that's the status quo, you're, you're good. Like the event is, is, is caught. So to, to look at the rankings, they're they're on the World Curling Federation website. You have to click on the About section and dig a little bit to find them. Right now, I've been pushing them to get them to be put in a more prominent place so people can find them a little easier. Or you can find them on Curling Zone as well. So if you go to Curling Zone, click on the Events link at the top of the uh, the top bar there. Um, that'll take you to the current schedule for the World Team Rankings. Every event up there is listed and uh showing there so uh you know if you're not on that list uh send me a, an email uh, jerry g-e-r-r-y at curlingzone.com we're going to be doing a few things one of the things i've been taking advantage of this time is to actually write some code I'm not making any money but uh um, at least i have some time and, and the opportunity to uh work on a bunch of uh projects that have been sitting in the uh in the basket of things I need to fix, so um, there will be some links put up there. It'll become a little bit more clear, but there's a spot where events will be able to register themselves as long as they meet the the basic guidelines.
2: Yeah. Um, so this is kind of you've touched on this a bit, but like as I think the slams are pretty well like doing pretty well these days. They're thriving, but you also mentioned a lot of the events, kind of one or two tiers down, are starting to struggle a bit in terms of entries. Uh, and, pay, and play down entries are also down a fair bit, and it's not just in Canada; it's in Scotland too. Um, so, one of the things I've observed in Scotland, when I got here seven years ago, I'd play in a Scottish Curling Tour event, and like Tom Brewster and Murdoch would be playing in that event. But I think the high-performance funded teams now simply play kind of high-level tour events. That's great, but it also seems like there's been a caving out of the kind of Scottish Curling Tour event. So, I think you've kind of implied you think that's a problem. So, what do you think? organizers of those events at the regional level need to do to uh, kind of revive interest in the, the more regional, regional events?
0: Well, I think this is where the, the challenges in the sport. And when you go back and look at the, the world curling tour in the 1990s, when it first got started, um, I've actually been doing a little bit of old newspaper research and trying to rebuild the records uh, back in those days but when I go and look at a tour event in Western Canada, for example, and you look at where all the teams are from, there's a curling team from every small town in, in, in on the prairies. Like I'm looking up places that I'd never heard of a curling club being from before. And there was a curling team playing on the World Curling Tour out of that event. You know, I, I think some of our problem is just the evolution and growth of what's happened to our sport in canada in general like there is a there is sort of a spot in the uh, in the age curve where where people just aren't competing anymore and it's a you know we can blame the millennials again probably um but i think it's that mindset though that's changed um, one of the things I was involved in a few years ago was when the Ontario Curling Association made some changes. They brought in a new uh, management group, and they they took a really deep look at the uh, at the, all the different playdance. in Ontario. We have like an a, B, a tier, B tier, C tier in all the different levels of competitions. There's a two team competition, like like there's so many competitions in Ontario that uh, you know you, there's all kinds of stuff you could do. And what what you could see in the age demographic was, is that there was a very uh, clear drop off that had by that point was around 45 years old of players participating in these events. So at that point, we had a 40 and over group, which was still running and still doing okay. But as those players aged out of that, then that group saw no entries anymore and they died off and that event went away. So like, it's in the early stage of seniors in in Ontario right now is where the strength in numbers really is. So we just lost the teams. And unfortunately, we can't really just poof, magically fix that anymore. And we're seeing that in Western Canada now. And we had this problem in Ontario, and it's still part of the problem. But I think we slowed the tide of it by focusing on making the entry-level events of the tour fun and an interesting, exciting, creating competitive opportunities so people still get out and compete. And if you don't, you know, like I was saying, you, you create the sandboxes so that the younger athletes can develop and rise up through that development system. And by the time they hit, you know, 30, when they, you know, start to get, to intellectually smart enough within the game, which is the natural development curve. Not everyone walks out knowing what to do at 21-22, but there sure are some that do. But that's the that's what's ended up happening to our sport. We've lost that. And you know, that I managed to work on building and strengthening that in Ontario. Unfortunately, I've been busy in a lot of other places and I'm doing a lot of other things as my interest in the sport evolved and That's even been neglected to a degree in Ontario. I've got some people who are coming on board. Uh, We were actually talking about this during the season where, uh, you know, we really need to have people on the ground building and developing these smaller tours in order to create the base of events that are the most important events in our sport. The competitive club spiel that plays in Ottawa, that plays in Kingston, that plays in, in, Yorkton that plays in all these small towns are the building blocks of the of the depth teams that end up making these bigger events successful because when you look at a spiel that you know the top third of the field is playing to win it you know they're most likely going to cash in most weekends they're getting paid the middle tier of the field is you know their target is to qualify let's make the playoffs and see what happens you know and they got a real chance to do it if they play well so they're getting a bit of something out of this. They're getting some money out of it. They're getting, you know, they're 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 into this competition side, but the bottom third of these fields are your, you know, they're your donators. You know, it, it's a it's a little bit of a derogatory term that sometimes you hear within the sport. You know, you're donating, you're this, they're that, but those teams are the are the are the teams that make this possible because if we don't have that depth then all of a sudden your 32 team event only has 24 teams or 18 teams and and then that purse can't be supported from that field and then the top teams stop coming and then the middle teams stop coming you know some other things that have started to happen out of this is that the tour events start to bulk up so you get to an event like the shorty where 17 of the top 20 men's teams were in it, had applied, had qualified. I think one or two dropped out to do something else. But that's for a regular tour event. And that just, you know, it's awesome in the moment for that event to get that kind of, of field. But a couple things happen out of that. The, the local teams get pushed aside. You know, the teams that have uh historically supported the event they've been loyal to the event so now they get pushed aside and you know if this goes on for a few years you know they're probably never coming back and the the top teams you know sometimes you know the events are at the whims of where they want to go so you get a year where the top teams don't show up and all of a sudden that event just dies out uh, the other the teams stop trying we had an amazing event in Lloydminster, Alberta, the Wayside Classic that ran for years that became one of these events and everyone else stopped showing up. They had all of the top teams registered for the event and it was in the you know, 15 to 20 range of teams, I think. But nobody else signed up because they didn't want to donate anymore. They went and played something else instead. And so, you know, we, we need to find a way to get these teams to spread out a little bit, create a bit more balance as well. And it's definitely been something that's been talked about where the teams sort of spread out and play the different events. But there's there's a, a number of other problems when you when you get into these things. So in order to rebuild the tour, we need to figure out how do we create more of these smaller events and how do we create more of these teams to come into this and Uh, Having a junior tour is also a very critical component to uh, to a successful region for development of competitive curl. It was also one of the things when I started in Ontario. Is I was lucky to you know that it had been existing for years already. You know, when you look at Alberta, for example, their junior tour is now at about ten years, and it's starting to you know bear fruit you know, out of that. You're starting to see like the Jeremy Hardys of the world, um, Dalen Vaverick, uh, Carter Lautner. Um, there's teams that are starting to come out of that pipeline. Uh, Brendan Botcher is sort of a, a, a special, um, a very special talent of a player that came out of juniors and, and could do it just about out of the gate and has graduated through, you know, through the university and stuff there. So I think, you know, you need to have that in order to support that at the same time, too. But some of these things like, you know, like the way it used to be, unfortunately, curling is kind of stuck in that uh, in the the, just the demographic world. Um, When you look at uh, one of the interesting stats that I've seen on on sports in general in Canada is that if you go back to 1995, the participation rate in recreational sport, 15 and older was in the 46, 47% range. You know, if you were, you did something in the evenings, in the weekends, whatever. In the 2010 to 2015 range, that number was down to about 26%.
2: Wow. (laughs) It's a big drop. Yeah.
0: We have just lost a lot of people who want to do stuff. That's the problem is what curling is facing. That's the problem that the tour is facing. That's the problem that golf is facing. That's the problem that every recreational sport is facing. So we have to figure out how do we drive our sport, drive our clubs, drive our everything we're doing to be better at attracting people and developing things and all of that. Like that's the real so, challenge we we face, right?
2: Yeah. So one of the things I've wondered is a lot of other sports have um, like ranking systems, not just rankings in terms of who's the top team, but also I'd say maybe something like a rating system where you know how strong a team is competitively, right? They're, they're kind yep. of doing different things. Like one's like, this is the best team this year. It's the 20th best. Yeah. And the other one's breaking you down into tiers. So The ELO ranking, um, right? The ELO ranking, right? So I, I'm kind of thinking this from chess where yeah. every every competitive chess match you play, you win or lose points based on whether or not you win or lose the game. And then you talk to any, even like a not even competitive chess player, just chess player, they they know that there are 1,200 or 1,500 or 2,000 or 2,800 or whatever. And so you know that you're not going to go and play Magnus Carlsen, who's like the best chess player in the world. But if you open, enter your local chess tournament, you'll enter a tournament and you know that it's capped at some band that's within your competitive
0: yeah.
2: competitive range. So more than two things. Have you ever thought of something like an ELO rating or a handicap for curling? And do you think that that would then help kind of rebuild lower tier events?
0: It's the best way to rank it. The problem is, is that and, – and you really have to give people – a way to understand the system or they're just going to throw the system out altogether. And that's probably the biggest problem with an ELO ranking. It, it, It takes in and factors everything and, and does it the way it needs to and, you know, and all that uses the math and stuff. I couldn't tell you how an ELO ranking works off by hand though. But, and, and that's part of the problems that I face with, with the world rankings and the push for it to be simplified. Like we have a ranking that has some complexity built into it and I'm fairly consistently being pushed by, you know, some people to simplify it, to make it easier to understand. You know, there are, there, you know, that's the real challenge is that people want a a simpler, as simple of a system as possible. And that's you know that's where an Elo ranking might be real difficult. Like it's something it's a project that uh, that uh, I've been toying with behind the scenes is to build an Elo ranking on Curling Zone and uh, run it with all the different data we have. Like we could even we could even roll down an Elo ranking system where it's the ends earned. So you know whether you win the game or not isn't necessarily as critical to how well you play in general there's all kinds of different ways you could look at and factor into that too. Couldn't there be? Yeah,
2: definitely. But so you do it, whether or not you pick up points based on the ends you win or.
0: Yeah. Like you could figure out. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, you take the wins and losses, you take the, you know, if you needed to take scoreboards, you could factor that in, but in general, it's, it's, it, you know, it's the easiest way to do it. But for most curling teams they are looking for is they want to be able to know how do I get from, 30th ranked in the world to 15th ranked in the world, which gets me into the grand slams. And they need to be able to look out and say, I want to build my schedule by playing here and earning this many points here and earning this many points. And I want to go here and win this many points. And if I make the quarterfinals in every one of those events, that's how many points I could realistically earn by deciding to play that schedule. That's what a curling team looks into when they are trying to build a schedule. You know, they kind of have a target, especially that group that is playing within the, you know, we're not in stuff for sure group. Like the top 10 are chasing the, you know, they're chasing the top points and they're chasing the money as well. You know, they're going to go play the events where the best purse prizes are, where there's TV. And for these teams, TV is is sponsorship sales on their backs. So that's, you know, the top 10, you know, when you, you know, that's where you're trying to get to. The teams outside that, they're trying to budget their schedules in a way that they can reach some of these things. So with an ELO ranking, that already goes out the door from, you know, from the average person looking at it and trying to say, okay, well, I want to get to this ranking. How do I get there?
2: So the other place you've seen a lot of growth with teams over the last decade is Asia. And so you know, it's like, you know, you, you go in a time machine from 2010 to today, I think people would be stunned by how many Asian teams would be are in the top top 20, top 30 in the world now. Uh, so we're wondering, how do the new rankings affect the tournaments in Asia? And what is this going to mean for the growth of the game in the Asia-Pacific region?
0: It shouldn't change much uh, out of the gate. Um, again, the the whole opportunity is to build events there. And so, you know, I've got an amazing group uh, that I've been working with there for some time and they're really working to to grow and develop the sport and they've got the right mindset to do so uh, in in Japan. You know, the, when you go back to that 2010 year, there was one competitive event with the men's and women's field. So, you know, two events in that time. Since that point, I think the schedule that they were looking at rolling out had something like 15 or 16 different events between – I think there was a couple of mixed doubles tournaments. There was a junior tournament on the list. But, uh, you know, massive growth in the sport just competitively. And this is not shocking that this is coming because you go back and look at the World Curling Tour in 2010 – I believe there were three or four Japanese teams traveling in Canada at the time. Like they're sending teams over here to play. There's obviously talent and opportunity and interest in doing so. The other thing in Japan that I don't think a lot of people realize is that right now, the way their playdowns work, just about everybody enters. them. So they still have that dream playdown. We talk about and think about in Canada where they've got the club level They'll go to regional levels, like a zone and a regional, and then a national level. And you know, I've heard numbers that like 200 teams sign up for playdowns there. Wow. And but the reason you don't see it is because it's 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 at such a you know a base level in the sport. But it's really exciting to see that 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 interest is still there within the athletes. So that's an opportunity to tap into to create these sort of competitive events because you know, there's people out there playing, you know, I think a lot of the, the lack of knowledge of the sport specifically from Japan is just the language uh, barrier. Like you go into uh, you know, you're, you're in the UK and you're trying to look at a, a Swiss German site. You can probably kind of work your way through it. Right. Yeah right you can kind of figure out you know where's the standings where's the scoreboard nowadays with google translate it's easy right you know you just flip a switch and the page will translate for you but before it was that easy you could kind of you know you know sort of stumble your way through the pages trying to load up a a, a website on uh, japanese curling you got no hope so i think that's one of the challenges with our lack of knowledge with the what's happening with the sport there but it's got a, a pretty strong historical depth to its sport with, with everything that's been happening. And and now we're starting to see the tour actually open up to that. And uh, I'd have to throw a a big shout out to Hiroshi Kobayashi. Um, He has since passed on, but uh, he came to, uh, to Toronto uh, met with the grand slam group and myself, and he wanted to bring help bring the tour to Japan. He wanted to bring a Grand Slam to Japan. Unfortunately, that didn't quite come through. But his, his early work and the work of uh, Manabu Aoki there and his uh, great team, you know, they they've managed to open the the door, the tour to the country, and at the same time, you know, created these opportunities within the country to to have these uh, opportunities. So, yeah, it's, it's been really neat working there. I love traveling to Japan. The, the culture there is amazing, and, uh, and the excitement for the sport is just – it's bonkers. Like, as, uh, you know, since Fujisawa won, it's lit a stick of dynamite uh, into the interest in the sport there. that won the bronze medal. You know, we always thought uh, when the United States won the gold medal, we'd, we'd be set. But the interest there, the the increase in the United States pales in comparison to what we've seen in Japan. And so, yeah. My
2: favorite thing on Twitter is the Japanese curling art. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. Oh right? yeah. The yeah. yeah, just like the fan art of like, it, they'll do it of North American players, but also of their favorite Japanese tour players, right? And it's just fantastic art.
0: A lot of those uh, teams curling themed. A lot of those yeah. teams get put into art when they go play in Japan. Oh That's, wow. That's what it usually stems from. And so these teams start showing up there. The fans start to start to, to gain an interest and and uh, they start to get that kind of relationship with the fans. Yeah, that's pretty neat to see.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Yeah. So I, th- thanks a lot, Jerry, for joining us today. Uh, I think I learned a lot about... Um, Order of Merit, the new ranking system, I guess the old new ranking system and uh, kind of your vision for how to grow the lower tiers of the sport of the second and third tiers. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up here?
0: Yeah, that's that's probably the biggest thing. You know, I really this is something that's somewhat surprised me uh, when this relationship began. But I know working with the with the WCF group, they saw they see the world rankings as a as a way to grow and develop the sport from from that level specifically so you know if there's anybody listening any associations listening to this uh you know reach out you know we want to figure out as much as developing and 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 uh and creating the sport in the country from a recreational level is important a way to help keep people interested and drive the the even smaller group of people who actually are are into the competitive side of the sport You know, we want to try and offer these next steps of of opportunity at the same time, too. So, like, you know, I'm excited to see what's going on in Eastern Europe, for example. Uh, Estonia, Latvia, uh, Poland's got a dedicated curling facility now, and they're starting to get into the the tour events and competitive events. Um, Hungary, uh, Czech Republic, uh, you know, all these places are great opportunities to, you know, create that next step of of competition you know the the eastern uh, european countries russia is another country where uh, you know they're ready to start getting more of these events and more of these opportunities and you know i think it's just it'd be amazing for the growth of our of our sport to see these sort of pipelines created so yeah that's that's the exciting opportunity i'm really looking forward to
2: and so if people want to get in touch with you, what's the easiest way just through uh, email probably, or Twitter or
0: uh, email, they can always uh, email me Jerry at curlingzone.com, G E R R Y at curlingzone.com. The best way is probably either reach me out on Facebook, uh, Twitter uh, at curling zone, or just find me on, on Facebook. Uh, all those places are a great way to reach out.
2: All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jerry. I really enjoyed having you on today and hopefully, uh, The lockdown will end soon. We can get back on the ice.
0: Hope so, too. Looking forward to it. All
1: right, Jonathan, thank you for putting on your journalism hat this week. I appreciate it, and hopefully I'll be able to contribute more to the team uh, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I think I learned a
2: lot from that interview. I think I think one thing that's good to see, I really like Jerry's discussion about the sandbox idea. And if we're going to go back to the the conversation at the beginning of the episode, I think one of the things that's lacking with the Team GB, Team Scotland selection policy, is there isn't really much of a sandbox for, you know, competitive teams that aren't yet ready to play on the international stage. And so, you know, hopefully coming out of uh these kind of big changes triggered by COVID over the last year. We can look for ways to develop some more regional tours, like like the Ontario curling tours done over the last 20 years in places like Scotland, in places like Europe, in places like Asia, to give a chance for more local teams, uh, kind of the more the weekend warrior types to to uh you know go play and complete and then hopefully we'll then provide a venue for kind of more talent to emerge in the future.
1: Yeah, I like the I like the idea of almost have it being three tiers where you have a developmental level where it's teams that have just aged out of juniors, but aren't quite ready for full men's schedules, a challenger level where you have teams that aren't, aren't at the high performance level. And then that challenger level one allows the weekend warriors something to play for other than just, you know, for fun bond spiels, but it also gives teams that are trying to work their way up to the high performance level a chance to play um, a lot of events as well. So, you know, it's, it's, good, it's good to have Jerry in the game uh, trying to help push these things as well.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it was good to hear, hear what he had to say, and uh, I think we learned a lot. So got any exciting plans, Ryan? Are you going to be staying at home?
1: My in-laws bought a pool, and that's pretty much my life right now.
2: So the pool is basically your personal Bournemouth Beach.
1: Yes, except there aren't any people there.
2: All right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to keep growing my beard, man. I'll see you next time.
1: All right. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond@gmail.com at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at curlingpodcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.